So I'd like to welcome you back to another uh, pod special. Uh, this is James of Hanky Time. I apologize, we've been a little bit out of pocket lately, and we're very happy to be back now, though, and hopefully offering you something really interesting and really cool. Today's guest is someone that many of you do know, but maybe a lot of you don't. His name is Dr. Jack Carlson. He is notable for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Most people within fashion know him as the founder of Rowing Blazers, the uh, fairly fairly conservative, diverse, wild, radical, preppy, urban uh, clothing company that is based out of New York. In addition, he is a former U.S. uh, national rowing team member, a bronze medalist at the World Championships in France, a Ph.D. holder from a tiny little obscure school in England, and uh, an all-around nice guy. So I really encourage you to uh, check it out. I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed making it. And here we go. Hi there. Welcome back. This is your old pal, Hanky. Uh, today is kind of a treat, and it's a podcast that I have been wanting to do for a real long time. There are some people out there in the world doing some pretty amazing things, and I think sometimes we get bogged down in the stuff that's readily accessible to us via, especially if you're a guy, via Esquire or even... Um, you know, could be Monocle, could be any one of the glossy men's magazines. And I think sometimes we lose the opportunity to learn about cool stuff. I had the very good fortune a little over a year ago to meet uh, Dr. Jack Carlson. Um, Jack is the founder of Rowing Blazers, which is a brand that I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm pretty obsessed with. Um, I'm old enough, I can face that. And uh, he and his colleagues did a pop-up in Boston, a couple of blocks from where I work at the Boston Public Library during my day job. Had a great opportunity to meet him and the staff to try on some blazers and to kind of pick his brain a little bit about um, what, in a sense, what made him tick, I guess would be a fair way to put it. Today, he's been kind enough to um, take a break from what is really kind of a crazy schedule to share some time with me and thereby with you. So I'd like like to wa- welcome, excuse me, Dr. Jack Carlson to the pod. Thanks for having me on. I'm thrilled to be here as well. Okay. So Jack, you are a man of kind of a gazillion talents. Uh, Georgetown graduate. That's debatable. <laughs> well, I'll, I, I'm doing the judging here today. So... Um, Georgetown undergraduate, I believe a doctorate degree in archaeology from some some kind of tiny university in England, uh, a, a national team member, a bronze medalist at the World Championships in 2015 in France, um, dare I say it, big dreamer and big doer. Um, I, I kind of want to start at the beginning when, what was kind of the motivation to start rowing blazers? Well, I think the subject of rowing blazers, which is such a quirky niche thing, uh, interested me for a long time. I mean, when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to go race um, at this rowing event in England called Henley Royal Regatta. Um, Henley, for those who don't know, is kind of like the Wimbledon of rowing. It's a very traditional event. It's part of the English social season, if you will. Um, and it's a very elite rowing competition, probably second only to the Olympics and the World Championships. Um, and it's a tradition at, 
at Henley that all the spectators, all the competitors will wear their uh, club blazer or their team blazer when they're not competing. Uh, I was absolutely fascinated by this. It kind of brought together three different strands that were um, of great interest to me when I was growing up and still are. And and those are really um, men's clothing, uh, history and tradition, if you will, and um, and heraldry or uh, the kind of, I don't know, symbolism of it all. I used to, side note, in a past life work at the College of Arms in London, which is a government institution that designs coats of arms for people. So hence the interest in kind of heraldry, symbolism, pageantry, uh, if you will. So fast forward quite a few years when I was at Oxford, I, uh, I had a little passion project, which was writing a book called Rowing Blazers. Came out in 2014. Um, I launched the book with Ralph Lauren, which was my first real entree into, um, into the menswear or fashion worlds. Uh, and on the, on the back of that, I went back into training for the national team. But my side project then became turning this book into a brand. And just a little, you know, background, I guess, on the book. The book was something that I really envisioned as being fairly niche and mostly of interest to the rowing community. And it turned out I was, I was wrong. It resonated with people in the menswear world, with people, um, people who were interested in, in fashion or style or clothing much more broadly. The blazer, a lot of people don't realize, even though pretty much everyone, no matter what they do, where they're from, guy, girl, any age, they, they pretty much always have a blazer hanging in their closet of some description, at, at least one, maybe, uh, maybe many. Um, but people don't realize the blazer comes from the sport of rowing. And originally, the blazer was uh, was kind of a casual warm-up jacket that was designed for oarsmen at Cambridge and Oxford uh, to throw on while they jogged down to practice or maybe even keep on um, in the boat while they were warming up or, or on especially chilly days to, to wear while they were racing. Um, the original blazers were often brightly colored. They would have contrasting trim or stripes or some kind of badge on the pocket essentially because they were uniforms. They were, they were sporting uniforms, and in many ways, the world's first uh, sporting uniforms. So the only other team sport in, in the Western world that predates rowing uh, is cricket. And in cricket, you have no problem telling which team is, is which, and so everyone just wore white. In rowing, if you've ever been to a regatta, it's very hard. You're often on a distant uh, uh, a bank somewhere, it's difficult to tell which, which crew is which, and uh, hence the need for uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the, the blazer has a lot of crazy traditions in, in the rowing world. This is maybe more background than, than you asked for, but I think it's important oh, to no. No, please. understand <laughs> the, the, the context of it all. Um, the blazer, even today, has a, a lot of traditions surrounding it, and every rowing club, national team, um, university or college rowing team has their own blazer traditions. Um, these are often very eccentric. Some of my favorites um, come from uh, come from the Netherlands. Uh, just as as an example, in in the Netherlands, it's um, it's a tradition that oarsmen will pass their blazers on from one generation of of rower to the next. So when when one rower is retiring from the sport. He 
he or she will will give their blazer to a neophyte who's just learning who's just learning the sport. Right. I'll, I'll so just if today. if I may, I'll, I'll just interject really quickly for the listeners. Yeah. Um, if you don't, if you haven't yet, and if you have an opportunity, um, check out Jack's book, Rowing Blazers, because it gets very visual. And and sorry, Jack, I didn't mean to cut you short, but. What really, what really struck me was how worn and how loved these jackets were. That these were some, no offense to the owners, but I mean, for for a novice like myself looking at these, I thought these are some pretty ratty ass jackets. But in fact, they were <laughs> they were true badges of uh, of belonging and membership, and it it was something that really stuck with me. I'm sorry, I'm going to hand it back to you now. <laughs> No, that's absolutely right. It's kind of a tradition that you don't wash your blazer. I mean, and often these jackets are worn to club dinners. They're worn uh, on on nights that go very late, and you often wake up in the morning with lots of stains <laughs> that you don't remember acquiring. Uh, but it's kind of tradition to leave them. Um, and in the in the case of the the Netherlands, the Dutch rowing clubs I was mentioning, um, they can be left for for generations. You have people walking around Henley Royal Regatta, which is extremely proper i mean if you're in the spectator area the steward's enclosure it's it's truly like being at an edwardian garden party um and yet there are all these dutch rowers walking around with jackets that are 80 100 years old and that may have not ever been washed in their entire existence because that's kind of that's kind of sacrilege um so does it get does it get a little funky though I mean, what's the what's the oh, olfactory yeah. quotient? Let's <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, another of my favorite just little anecdotes, just to give a flavor of what these sort of stories are like. Um, there's a, there's a school rowing club in England that has a yellow and black striped blazer mm-hmm. uh, as as the as the team blazer. But if you win uh, sort of the triple crown of junior rowing when you're at this school, if you win Henley, the national championship, and the head of the river race, um, you get a special blazer, which is made by cutting down a piece of the curtains from the school's medieval dining hall and tailoring that into a double-breasted blazer. Wow. It's it's made out of – it's essentially like wearing a – potato sack or something but one that's emblazoned with all these crowns and lions rampant it's uh yeah it's just it's just another example of the kind of bizarre traditions that um are part of this uh are part of this world so yeah i mean to to kind of bring it back i guess i i wrote this book very sort of um what i felt was very sort of niche ended up resonating very well in the menswear world Mm -hmm. um decided to to really start making these blazers properly many of the traditional tailors had had stopped existing in many cases that it was not so much a company as one guy here or there who when he retired it was it was done i mean no right one was kind of taking over so so decided to to start making blazers really kind of the proper way which no one had done for several years and to to create a brand um and, and a company uh, with the sort of knowledge and research that, that had gone into the book. Okay. So if I could ask a quick question then, because you, you hit on something that, I mean, to those of us in the watch world is is a big deal, and that's, you know, the words you used were making it the proper way. So I guess for, for the layperson, um, obviously when you're going to get a suit made, there's a difference obviously between 
um, you know, going and getting something altered off the rack, um, going to get a so-called bespoke and actually going full bore and having something hand done with the hand stitching and the lapel. How does that really translate to, to the world of blazers? And I guess maybe let me dumb it down a little bit. What, what are some simple differences between the right way and the wrong way? Yeah, absolutely. So um, because the blazer originated as sportswear, I mean, truly, uh, that, that word has gotten a little mixed up in how it's used today, but truly it was, it was worn for athletic training and competitions uh, uh-huh. back in the day. You know, a blazer is not supposed to be like, a, you know, like wearing a bespoke suit. Um, but you're absolutely right. There are some idiosyncratic things that make that make a, a rowing blazer or that make any blazer sort of a proper blazer on the original model. Um, and those things are are things that have largely been sort of forgotten um, and that we are working to bring back. So a proper blazer actually doesn't have a vent in the back. Uh-huh. Um, the vent was uh, was an innovation of, of riding. Um uh, the vent has um, equestrian and, and military uh, origins. Um, uh, a proper blazer will just have a simple, um, a simple flat uh, bottom edge around the back. Okay. Um, a proper blazer is actually is unlined, and there's a lot of confusion about this actually because um, a lot of people I've noticed have got it into their heads that if a jacket is lined, it's it's nicer somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they think in many cases that the polyester or rayon lining that they see inside their jackets is is silk. Um, unfortunately, in most cases uh, today, unless unless it's a you know true sort of Savile Row um, bespoke jacket, it's uh, it's not, mm-hmm. um, and it's much more difficult nowadays because it requires. Um, a lot more skill and, and more handwork to create a really nice online jacket because all of the interior seams are exposed rather than, uh, you know, rather than being able to cover them with a big piece of shiny ah. uh, polyester or something. So in other words, it's, um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a way to cover up a multitude of sins well, exactly. in the production. And, and I mean, you can't, you know, you can't blame someone for not, you know, uh, not, having really nice interior seams if no one's ever going to see them. But a you know, proper jacket, a proper, uh, sorry, I should say a proper rowing jacket or a proper blazer um, it would, would always be online. Um, another thing uh, is patch pockets. Uh, you know, a, row, a rowing blazer um, uh, always has patch pockets. Uh, and, you know, a proper blazer always ha- is a three-roll two um, silhouette if it's a, if it's a single single-breasted um, blazer. Mm-hmm. So three-roll-two button stance is, I'm, I'm sure you know, um, it's a three-button blazer, but the top button is not really used, and it the lapel rolls open to be more like yeah. a two-button blazer. Yeah, exactly. It's a little different from a two-button because it has this nice sweeping roll yeah. to the lapel. Um, and that's something that's very kind of in vogue now, but it's something that that really started with uh, with the blazer. Just one one other actually quick thing to say Please. about you know the blazer and its origins. There was for a long time this um, this sort of false etymology of the word blazer floating around, and you, you still hear it um, today. But 
the, the story went that the blazer and the, the word blazer originated with a, um, with a ship, a British naval ship um, from the eight, that really existed uh, in the 1890s called the HMS Blazer. Uh-huh. Um, it was a Royal Navy fire ship. Um, and the story goes that the captain wanted all of his uh, sailors to wear matching navy blue jackets, um, and these jackets became nicknamed Blazers and made their way into civilian life, and the, and the rest is history. And that sounds very... Um, that sounds like it should be right, and you hear that, you, you can read it in many even sort of authoritative books. One really interesting thing to come out of my research, and, and that's in, of course, the book, Rowing Blazers, uh, is that actually the, the word blazer it comes from the sport of rowing as well. Mm. Um, so many of these early jackets and, and, and many rowing blazers today for rowing clubs are very brightly colored. One of these at a Cambridge college called Lady Margaret Bow Club um, their blazers were bright red, um, and they still are today. Actually, as a company, Rowing Blazers, we make we make those those jackets for that club, and that's the original blazer. Because as far back as 1852, uh, and I kind of rediscovered this in the library. It's the first written use of the word blazer. Um, there's a list of all the different uh, crews and their uniforms at Cambridge University, and you know it says for Trinity College a navy blue jacket for uh, for Keys uh, Boat Club, a black jacket. For Lady Margaret Boat Club, a bright red jacket or, and then in quotation marks, blazer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so named because it's, uh, because it's blazing red. Uh-huh. Um, and and uh, yeah, just those little kind of uh, discoveries were, yeah, were part of what made writing the book. And, and those little stories in general are part of what makes, what makes this job uh, fun. No, absolutely. So let me ask you a different question. You know, you you had you you went off. You got a a fairly advanced degree in archaeology. Um, you got to further pursue your passion for rowing. You came back. You had a successful book. And and I say this with all due respect, but what in God's name possessed you <laughs> to go into the fashion business? Man, I ask myself the same thing every day. Um, no, I mean. No, not really. It's um, yeah. It's it's something that you know I didn't really um, kind of map out ahead of time. I think really I've just been following following my passions, following what I'm interested in, and it's it's led me to where I am now. Um, and in many ways, uh, I think a lot of what we do as a company, a lot of what we do at Rowing Blazers reflects the kind of myriad interests that I have and, and many of the other things that I've done in other worlds, um, you know, during, during my life. Um, so, you know, we incorporate a lot of classical, um, a lot of classical imagery. There are Latin mottos cross stitched under the lapels, Mm -hmm. which is another traditional kind of rowing thing. Um, we, we incorporate, uh, we incorporate some of the archeology span really into what we do. And I think, Part of what separates us as a brand is the depth um, of research that we go into on almost anything that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not to say that it's necessarily a, an academic pursuit in most cases, but, um, but I do think that that's something that separates us as a brand. And I think in general, um, you know, if you look at our Instagram or come into our store and look at what's on the walls or if you follow our 
our other Instagram, which is the mood board on, on Instagram, right. you'll see a, a very kind of eclectic mix of images and influences. And uh, in I guess at first blush, um, you might kind of think, well, how do these things all fit together? And uh, I suppose the answer is that they're all things that have really influenced me or been part of my life up until now. And they're all you know, very deeply kind of woven into the, into the brand. And I think, um, I think that's been kind of the really cool thing is seeing that, um, actually for most people, you know, after, after taking a look at it, they, they do kind of make sense together and they do kind of, uh, yeah, mesh into what is, what is now, you know, I think a fairly strong, uh, strong kind of brand, if that makes sense. No, no, it really does. Um, I guess to get, to get more into, like, just from a practical perspective, answering your question, you know, it's funny. I finished my PhD in Oxford. The book had just come out uh, in the U.S. I, I handed in my PhD a couple days before Christmas in 2014, and the book had just come out that autumn in the U.S. Um, moved back to Massachusetts, where I'm from. Um, started teaching classics and coaching at a at a boarding school whoa, whoa, whoa. time out time out time out now that that is a piece of the puzzle that i was not aware of so i'm sorry as a as a teacher myself i'm gonna have to probe <laughs> you a little bit there um so you went you went back and had you taught before or was this a whole new experience for you no it was something i always wanted to do actually you know when i first went to oxford um after after finishing my undergrad i went to oxford to do a two-year master's degree and mm -hmm. the idea had always been to go to Oxford, do a two-year master's, and then to come back to New England and teach and coach uh, rowing at a high school. Huh. Um, that was always kind of my plan. Um, I was pretty much all set to do that, actually. I, I did a two-year master's in archaeology at Oxford. I was all set. I had the, the, the job and the school all lined up. I was going to come back, teach rowing, and coach, um, coach classics, ancient history, Latin, at the high school level, um, I was then asked um, by by Oxford, by the university, and by my supervisors to stay on and do a do what they call a DPhil. Actually, that's right. Oxford yep. for a PhD, um, and uh, they they gave me a very good offer, uh, a scholarship, um, and so I felt it was a really good opportunity, and I should take it. So I stayed, mm -hmm. but I still had. I still kind of wanted to scratch that itch, I guess. So, uh -huh. um, so when I first finished my, my PhD, I came back to Massachusetts and I was at St. Mark's in, uh, in Southborough, Mass, mm -hmm. um, teaching and, uh, and I was the boys head rowing coach, which someday, I mean, I can write a book just about that because, uh, yeah, teaching, I mean, uh, teaching and as you know, and even more so coaching rowing, um, at the high school level, there's just every day there are just so many crazy stories, so many yep. <laughs> crazy things that happen. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I was only there for um, for like the spring semester. So I handed in my PhD just before Christmas right. um, of 2014. So it was kind of spring semester of 2015. And then in May of 2015, I was asked to come back on to the U.S. national rowing team. Uh -huh. Of course, by that time, I was eating, you know, boarding school, dining hall, dinners. <laughs> I was going to Five Guys and celebrating my newfound freedom from having to stay at Cox and Wait. Uh -huh. um, 
and was generally enjoying my retirement from elite rowing. Um, so I had to, you know, almost like cue a Rocky-esque montage of getting back <laughs> into shape. But that's, that's what my summer 2015 looked like. And that's when I started really as kind of a side project, um, turning Rowing Blazers, the book, into Rowing Blazers, the brand, while I was training. Okay, so maybe if I could, if I could ask some more questions here, because this parallels a lot of um, what I'm going to say are creation stories versus creation myths. And you have I, you and I have talked a little bit offline, and you know, I mean, I think Jean Claude Biver has the ultimate creation myth with Blanc Pond. Um, that, oh, you know, it's it was all spun out of this, that, and the other, and really it's a lot of hyperbole. But really, Rowing Blazers was a pretty homespun, pretty humble effort to get off the ground. Can you share a little bit more about that? Very much so. So um, so I, I started working with um, a, a friend of mine, a guy named David, who I think you've, you've met, James, yeah. at the pop-up as well. Um David is uh, David is a little bit older than me. He's um, spent his career really in the in the apparel world. He's a real old school. Uh, you'd probably laugh if I said this, but like old school kind of Carmento guy. Um, I actually met him for the first time on during spring break when I was teaching at um, at St. Mark's, and I went down I, the second week of spring break. I was coaching like 40 kids or something I was responsible for in, uh, on a training trip, a rowing trip in oh, Orlando. Geez. The <laughs> first week of, sp- of spring break, I went to New York and decided to meet with a whole bunch of people who could maybe help me turn this into a brand. And uh, David was one of like 20 people I met, by far the craziest guy I met. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and we just really hit it off right away. I told him, you know, look, I'm teaching and coaching at a boarding school. I really can't do anything on this right now, but in the summer we can kind of make a start on this, you know, and by the way, tomorrow I'm driving a trailer of boats 24 <laughs> hours nonstop from Massachusetts to Florida. And then I'm going to be in charge of like 40 kids in a holiday in for <laughs> eight days. So please don't call me, but we'll, we'll pick this up in the summer. He called me of course the next day, <laughs> um, <laughs> enthusiastic as ever he proceeded to pester me almost every day for the whole rest of the semester i would be out in the coaching launch and look down at my phone and there would be david calling me um but it was actually great we uh we started you know we we made a start on it and it started as a kind of one day a week project when i started training in boston and then subsequently in princeton where most of the u.s national rowing team um at the time was based I would go to New York once a week. I'd go on Wednesday afternoons. Uh, David and I would run around the garment district like a couple of crazy people and um, meet with different factories, meet with different fabric suppliers, um, and and really just try to make it happen by hook or by crook. Mm-hmm. For, a, for a long period of time, I was based in, uh, in Chula Vista, which is south of San Diego near yeah. the Mexican border in, in California. And, uh, I mean, when you're on the, when you're on the national team, you just go wherever they tell you to go. So I was based there training for a while. Um, and David would fly out and we'd meet in our West coast office, which was <laughs> an in and out burger. Uh-huh. And we'd lay out, we'd lay out all the, all the latest samples. We'd look at what the corrections were. We'd brainstorm about, you know, what we want the website to look like eventually, um, and it was really, yeah, it was a real passion project. It was like meeting in diners and 
and uh, and In and Out Burgers. It was going to the city once a week and running around. Um, and then uh, in in probably fall of 2016, uh, my girlfriend Kazaya, who who you know is now a very important part of the brand as well. She and I moved to the city, and it was really the three of us then, Kaziah, David, and, and I, um, working on it full-time for the first time. Mm-hmm. We, we got an office in Nomad, which um, was, I say an office, I mean, it truly was a closet. Uh-huh. Um, it, was, it was meant to be like a one-person cubicle, and there were three of us in there. Eventually, there were five of us in there. We <laughs> couldn't really move. Um, uh, it was in uh, a building... The two floors below us were, um, it was what was built, there was a big sign that said, New York's largest African hair weave emporium. Um, And it was two floors of human hair. Uh, I mean, things that were just so weird about this building, about this as like a first office, Uh that if you were going to write it into a movie script, like you couldn't make up, you know? Right. Like you talk about hyperbole. It was really like you couldn't you couldn't write this stuff. Um, kind of the antithesis, really. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. It was a um, it was definitely humble beginnings for sure, mm-hmm. uh, and it was truly a, a labor of love. Okay, so let's take a little a little sidetrack here because you know one of odd as this is going to sound to listeners and maybe to to Jack himself. I had actually caught on to Jack a little bit earlier than when we first met because he also is a I let me I want to be very careful about how I say this because he has a very good eye for interesting watches and owing to um who he is obviously I think people seek out his opinion and they're very curious about what he might be wearing uh, and I had read a few pieces one or two I think penned by you and I could be wrong about that but certainly in the most recent one, uh, which was under the Christmas tree this year, uh, my wife gave me a man and his watch, and uh, they're on page sixty-three by Dr. Jack Carlson, archaeologist and author, was something about his nineteen fourteen Waltham Trench watch. Um, Jack has got a very keen eye, and it's very, very much, I think, and I, this is just based on a on a distant observer's opinion. But he doesn't really follow trends. It would be easy to say, okay, I want the Omega Speedmaster. I want the this, I want the that. But I don't really get the sense that when you are when you were looking at any of these watches that you were really concerned about what other people thought or about what the trend was, what the resale value was. Um, and also in your choices, I don't get the impression that there was a lot of FOMO. I don't get the impression that you had a big fear of missing out if you didn't pull the trigger right away. <laughs> I don't know enough to uh, to have FOMO in the watch world. I mean, I'm 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 in many ways uh, an interloper, and I've been very lucky to know a lot of people who know a lot more than I do. Um, you know, just to say a little bit about my background with watches. You know, I'm very lucky to know um, Eric Wind, mm-hmm. um, uh, who I'm sure is a familiar name to many to many listeners. Um, Eric was a classmate of mine and uh, one of my best friends from Georgetown. Um, we we lived on the same floor freshman year. Um, Eric was really like my main non-rowing friend at Georgetown. Um, and, uh, you know, Eric was always like a very nerdy guy. We had that in common. Um, uh, very nerdy guy at Georgetown would always be... Um, 
yeah, would always be geeking out on the most obscure subjects, um, watches being just one of them. Uh, Eric later actually was at Oxford. He did an MBA for one year during the during the six and a half years, uh, <laughs> which I was which I was there. Um, and uh, yeah, truly one of my best friends in the world. He obviously, um, you know, was part of Hodinkee from the early days. He um, he left Hodinkee. He went to Christie's, where he was VP of watches. Wow. Um, he's now he's now doing his own his own thing. He has his own um, you know vintage watch mm-hmm. uh, business. Can we give um, him a plug? But he's been someone. Can we give him a quick plug? Say that again. Can we give his business a quick plug here? Yes, please. Win Vintage, go for it. Okay. <laughs> so um, once more, Win Vintage, and that's in New York. Um, Eric is based, I think, in Palm Beach these days, uh, and and he does have. Um, he's in New York often, and he does have a selection of watches actually in the Rowing Blazer store uh, in New York. Um, but Eric is, uh, yeah, Eric is a guy I've been very, very fortunate to know. Who knows many, many orders of magnitude more about watches uh, than I do. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's an important part of that that story. Okay. So I, I kind of want to take now, zig us back onto rowing blazers and rowing. And you, one of the things that anybody who reads Tempest Fujit, you know, the poor insomniacs late at night, um, is basically, I, I think that what we, and by we, I mean mostly me, what I'm usually on the lookout for is not just a brand, not just innovation, whatever, but I'm always looking for a brand or an identity or a company or even an individual with heart. And one of the things that really struck me, and I'll, there's going to be a little bit more to this, was your involvement with Row New York, I believe is your organization, correct? Yep. Yeah. And I, I think that I like, need to give everybody a little bit of background. There's a little bit of hinky lore. Um, I grew up pretty, I mean, in some ways, very middle class, but my father was a country club manager. So in essence, I lived in a very weird dichotomy in the sense that, yes, um, my summer jobs were spent in the golf locker room, polishing shoes, cleaning golf clubs, uh, running errands for country club members that they would rather their wives didn't know about, um, all of those types of things, but... (laughs) On the flip side, you know, later on, go home, shower up, clean up, and I get to eat in the main dining room with my dad, as that was one of his perks. Um, so I've always had kind of this weird yin and yang love-hate thing with, I want, and I want to be very clear, this is just my own hang-up, uh, with, with uh, you know, presumption of classes, that or the other. And one of the things, you know, Jack, when you and I got to speaking, I think I had lived in a very shuttered life in that, you know, my easiest assumption is, well, rowing is for rich kids and it's a white people's sport and it's not for everybody. And we had met and we talked a little bit about it. We did an interview for Tempest Fujit, but then uh, I had a, I had what we call a client at my day job where I'm a, I'm an educational advisor. And the young man was, um, you know, very keen on rowing, very passionate. And I reached out to Jack who gave me some great feedback about possible schools that had rowing scholarships, and I digress a bit here. But maybe could you tell me a little bit more about your involvement with Row New York and maybe about the organization itself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're you're spot on with um, what many of the stereotypes about the sport are. Uh, and, you know, many of the stereotypes are largely 
be true about the sport and that's you know that's not a good thing that's um that's not a good thing for the sport as someone who you know was on the national team it's not a good thing for the lack of diversity in the sport is not a good thing for our uh even for our performance as a national as a national team um uh rowing is an expensive sport um there's you have to be near water you you have to have expensive boats um it's it's a very it's a sport that's very much associated with boarding schools with uh, you know ivy league colleges etc um and you're you're absolutely right it's a sport that is often kind of thought of as a you know rich white kids sport and i think that's uh that's not a good thing at all, it's not, and it's certainly not a good thing for the sport. I first got involved in um, an organization yeah, called Row New York, um, actually with the book. When the book came out um, and we had the launch event at Ralph Lauren in New York, um, uh, part of the proceeds from that event um, went to Row New York. Um, Row New York is an organization that, um, uh, it's, a, it's a rowing and academic program for kids in New York, and the idea is um, for it to be open to anybody uh, who's interested. And so a large percentage, not all, but, but a large um, percentage, the majority of kids participating in Row New York come from um, low-income families, come from you know under-resourced parts of the city, um, attend high schools that um, have very limited uh, offerings when it comes to sport and often have very low graduation rates and very, very low college acceptance rates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Row New York is, is both transforming those kids lives. Um, and it's also really transforming, um, the sport as, as we know it. Um, because Row New York is not just kind of paying lip service to these ideas. When I first heard about it, I was like, Oh, okay. You know, that's nice. Probably take kids out for like a little learn to row <laughs> session. Right. Show them what rowing is and that's kind of it. It's actually a very competitive rowing program. And they actually, it's it's kind of three rowing programs in one. They have boat houses in Manhattan, Queens, and uh, and Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And each of those, uh, each of those rowing teams, um, and we're talking, you know, we're talking hundreds of kids uh, uh, every year. Um, you know, they participate um, at, like, the New York State Championships. They often qualify multiple boats for the national championships, wow. which when I was in high school, when I was doing junior rowing, like, I never qualified for, for the national championships. Right. That's a huge deal. Um, and and academic support and tutoring and, and test prep and so on is all part of what they do as well. So these kids who are coming from high schools that have very low graduation rates and very low college acceptance rates, a hundred percent are graduating from high school. Ninety-nine percent are are going to college. Um, many of them are rowing in college for some of the best rowing teams in the country. They're sending kids to uh, Columbia, Cal Berkeley, the Naval Academy. Um, you know, it's it's really an amazing it's an amazing program. Um, and and of course, the other thing which I haven't said explicitly, but it's a rowing program that looks very different from most rowing programs in the country today and from what you might envision if you think of a rowing program. And that's to say, you know, it's it's very 
it's very diverse and that's you know that's a really really important and really positive thing for the sport so we've done um we've done a collaboration with another brand noah that has benefited row new york and then the other thing you know that we that we do a little bit more quietly and we've done really since even before we launched i think is we make blazers for all the kids all the graduating oh, nice. high school seniors who are part of the program every year you know this tradition of the blazer it's an important part of the sport um we you know we make blazers for you know deerfield academy um but it shouldn't just be the kids going to schools like deerfield that um get to experience that part of the sport um and that part of really like the culture of rowing um you know so that's that's been something that means you know means a lot to me personally and, and means a lot to the brand really from from the beginning is uh is supporting Row New York, and um, yeah, I mean, I can't say enough good things about the program. It's, I think, it's rare to uh, encounter uh, a program that really is um, operating like as well and and uh, as true to its mission and as efficiently and so on as as Row New York. It's it's really amazing what they do. Okay, well, I mean. Thank you for thank you for telling more about that because it's it's very easy for me to comment on it, but I think when we can, it's it's kind of rare, I think. And I, I will say this to the listeners out there: I'm as you probably know in my third life, I do a lot of uh, a lot of marketing PR work for brands, and you know I would probably if Jack were my client, I'd be throttling him on a daily basis, saying you have to publicize this, you have to say more about it put it on the website. Uh, and, I, and I think that actually really speaks volumes to the level of commitment and, and really where that commitment comes from. And Jack, jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. But there's not, it would be an easy, it would be an easy PR piece to grab. Uh, but I, I I have a lot of respect for you and for rolling, rowing blazers in the way that you've handled that because it, you know, I, I work with a lot of kids in the same situation every day. And I can tell you that, yeah, that, that feeling of, for lack of a better way to put it, recognition, uh, part of being part of a group, um, it really goes a long way. And in a lot of ways that we don't see, even when we work with these kids every day, you know, a lot of times it comes back to us even years later when we either encounter them or, or a family member or an employer. So um, thank you so much for A, for doing it, and B, for telling us a little bit more about it. So... Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And just to say also, you know, we, we have... We have an intern this summer. We had another intern last summer who are in college, you know, both times in college who are graduates from the program. We try to really be deeply kind of connected to it. And it's funny what you say about like, you know, talking about it more, getting it out there more. We certainly, you know, we certainly talk about Row New York as a program. We're very, very proud of our, our, you know, very small kind of contributions to Row New York. Um, but I think it's something it just made me think more generally about the brand. It's like, we actually have so many different irons in the fire at a time. We have so much going on. We're involved in so many different things for, for a very small brand. I mean, we only celebrated our two year anniversary, uh, last week. Yeah. I just, uh, I think your point about talking about real New York more and publicizing it more, we, we certainly do talk about it and we're certainly very proud of our, relatively small, you know, contribution to that amazing organization. But I think it speaks to a kind of a larger point that it, it just made me think about, which is, you know, at Rowing Blazers, we, 
we do have a lot going on. We have a lot of irons in the fire. Um, you know, we, we've done a, a, a good number of collaborations. Um, there's a lot of depth to what we do, but I think that's kind of part of what makes the brand so rich. Someone the other day was telling me when we came out with, uh, with our version of the fun shirt, um, and then we did another product drop, I think a week later, this person was saying, you know, I work with some, you know, I work with a lot of brands. You could just be talking about that one thing in the fun shirt. That could be your thing for the whole summer. And you're already doing another, another product drop, another collaboration, another project like a week later right and it is uh it, it does make it a little bit of a manic pace uh you know i suppose if you want to look at it that way but i think the other the other thing the other way that i look at it is it makes the brand very rich i mean you can look at one thing read about one thing and as you keep carving away layers not to use too much of an archaeology <laughs> sort of metaphor there's more and more and more there and there's more going on then you know might just meet the eye or that might just be our latest instagram post and that's sort of what i like about it that's sort of what i try to build here as, as a brand is a brand with a lot of depth and the more uh the more sort of strata that you carve away and and the deeper you go the more interesting stuff you'll you'll discover mm-hmm so, I mean, I, I have to ask, because my mom became a fashion designer very late in life, actually the same age as I am now at 50, and she obviously was a neophyte, knew nothing about the inner workings of the business. What, I mean, from, from your perspective now, you got, a, you got a little, you got some miles under your belt. What do you think is right about the business that you're in right now? What What is it doing right? What's positive about it? What what gives it gives it weight to be recommended or commended as a possible pursuit? Wow, about the brand, or you mean about the industry in general? How, how let's let's even be more specific. How about your brand's place in the industry? Well, you know, I try actually not to think too much about <laughs> the industry at large um, when I think about our brand. I think. Um, the more you kind of get caught up in what everybody else is doing, the more you risk looking like everybody else. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so, you know, some people think of our brand as a very traditional preppy sort of brand. There are some people who think of our brand as being a streetwear brand. Right. Um, I try to just kind of ignore all of, you know, I try to ignore all of those labels and just do what what we're doing and just try to do things the right way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think uh, trying to build a brand that really defies a lot of the um, pigeonholes that the industry tries to place people, you know, brands, styles, types of clothing into is, uh, is a sort of noble pursuit um, because I don't think that people necessarily in real life, uh, set out to, to fit neatly into any of those kind of pigeonholes. Um, so I'd say about Rowing Blazer's place in the industry, I think it's, we've gotten a lot of attention. We've gotten a lot of great press. I think that's in part a result of people being sort of bemused by um, the question of like what Rowing Blazer's is and where does it fit in. Uh-huh. Uh, meanwhile, I'm just, you know, 
I'm just kind of doing my own thing and, um, and, uh, yeah, not trying to follow any trend or any particular, uh, sort of label. If you come into our store in New York on a Saturday afternoon, you know, you'll see kids with skateboards, you'll see like super wealthy, uh, you know, people from other countries with more Supreme bags than they can carry <laughs> and they're shopping, you know, in our store you'll see like uh, old guys from the Upper East Side wearing their barber jackets and, you know, a suit and tie, even though it's a Saturday, or a blazer and tie, even though it's a Saturday. Uh-huh. And they're shopping. The families coming in from Connecticut, in some cases, like just to come to our store. Right. Um, it's, a whole, it's a whole mix of people, like young, old, street, preppy, blah, 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 blah all these quote-unquote, you know, labels. Um, and, uh, yet, you know, they're all kind of, they're all, you know, shopping at our store. They're all under the same roof. So that's why I kind of actually, you know, when you think about the industry and you think about some of these labels, I try to ignore most of that. Um, I think that's in some ways been kind of the key to, to our success so far. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because one of the, you know, I'd, I'd say again, it's kind of a love hate and I'm not trying to stir any political pots here. Um, but you know, in the watch industry, obviously Swiss made usually is about as Swiss made as I am and listeners for the record, I was born in Zanesville, Ohio. Um, but very often I think there's this big, there's this big push for, um, provenance and quote unquote the craft and, and that's all well and good. And I think sometimes again, to use the H word, it's a little bit more hyperbolic than it is, um, reality. But having said that, and again, this is one of those uh, underpublicized items out there in the in the rowing blazers world. Uh, tell us, Jack, where are your blazers made? So our blazers are made in the garment district in uh, in in New York City in Manhattan, which often blows people's minds. I mean, people who've been um, people who've been in this industry, uh, you know, especially. Uh, it blows their mind because that's just not something that you hear very often. Um, but yeah, we, right where we started, um, uh, right in New York City, um, in the garment districts, we use primarily um, British or Italian uh, fabric. We use some Japanese, some American, but primarily British and Italian. And we're uh, yeah, we're we're making all the blazers um, in a in a little workshop in the garment district. Mm-hmm. And but again, what's interesting is you know for the listeners out there, this is not. Um, and I, I think again, this is you know this gets back to, and this is not meant to be sort of like hero worship or whatever. But you know, another thing that I really like about the brand, and um, just for the record, folks, I'm a I'm a proud owner of a Rowing Blazers rugby shirt, which I tend to wear more as a uh, as a blazer uh, over my dress shirts. But they're. I, I just have to say it's it's not a lot of pretension. It's not a lot of posturing. It just so happens that, yes, we make them in New York, by the way, if you're interested. Whereas I think a lot of brands would actually, that would be their their opening salvo. We're made in America. And, you know, which is all well and good. And it's important. And don't get me wrong. But I I find that that is a lot of what makes your brand, at least to me, very sincere it's not, it doesn't really seem to be like a, a grasp for attention. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And the reason why 
um, you know, the reason why we started making blazers here in New York uh, in the first place is um, quite simply, I wanted to be very hands-on with the process. I wanted to be, um, I wanted to be right there working with the people who are actually sewing the sewing the garments. Um, and and I still do. I mean, it's in some ways it's a good thing. In some ways it's a bad thing. I'm a little obsessive about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to be very, very hands-on. And the other thing is, you know, we just go where, um, where, where the quality is. Things that might look simple, like many of our blazers have grow grain trim around the edge because, of course, that's a very traditional thing right. uh, for a rowing blazer, you know. Um, and, and by the way, we didn't talk too much about this, but a big pillar of our business that we also don't necessarily probably talk enough about is we make blazers for the U.S. national rowing team, for many of the top college and university rowing teams around the world, um, the German national team, the USA rugby team, mm-hmm. um, the New York Athletic Club, uh, the Explorers Club, where we just made blazers for all of the Apollo astronauts. Oh, wow. Um, there are all sorts of, um, yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of cool things that we do um, that we don't you know, talk very much about. Um, uh, and, but anyway, many of those blazers have, have details to them, things like cross-stitching under the lapel, um, things like grow grain trim, which actually seems fairly simple. But in reality, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to, to, to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult to make a blazer with grow grain trim around the edge and have that look totally the way it should. Um, so that's the other thing. It's just, you know, we need to be working with the craftspeople who can do this and who can do it well. You mentioned our rugby shirts. Our rugby shirts are made in, uh, some are made here in the U.S., some are made in Portugal, some are made in France. Um, much of the fabric that we use is, uh, is, is made on vintage knitting machines in France mm. for the rugby shirts. So for us, it's not so much a kind of, rah rah USA you know sort of thing although you know that is it's very nice and I we love supporting the garment district in New York it's a uh-huh. very historic um you know place for the industry and one that's in some ways is kind of you know kind of dying so we love to be part of supporting it and actually growing um growing that industry in the in the garment district in New York uh-huh. but uh but yeah it's about it's about working with um working with the, the right people who can who can do um, the kind of level of quality and in many cases the traditional techniques that have sort of fallen out of common common usage um, uh, uh, you know the way we need to and of course making sure that um, everything we're doing is kind of ethically and sustainably uh, sourced as well so um, all the all those things are kind of factors in what we do. Okay, so typical Tempest Fuji questions are along the lines of who else out there is is making stuff or doing things that inspire you. Wow. Well, you know, I'm inspired. This is a bit of a cop out answer, but I'm inspired a lot by by vintage. Uh-huh. I mean, I spend probably several hours a day um, scouring eBay, but also scouring other other vintage sources. Um, I collect tons of vintage. I mean, everything from vintage blazers to vintage rugby shirts to vintage t-shirts, hats, etc. 
Um, uh, that's not exactly answering kind of <laughs> who out there today. I, I understand. I mean, you know, the other brands that we're kind of in a constellation um, of, of stores with in uh, Nolita, Soho, um, where, where we're based in New York, um, you know, are Drake's, uh, Noah, and M.A. Leon Dor. Mm-hmm. Those are three very, very different brands. I mean, Drake's is very conservative, very traditional, very much um, takes itself quite seriously, I think. Um, Noah is, in many ways, kind of a skating, mm-hmm. skating brand. M.A. Leon Dor is kind of a mix between, like, I don't know, kind of 90s polo sport, 90s hill figure kind of vibes, and, and also more of a sort of streetwear brand. Right. I mean, and Rowing Blazers, of course, is kind of like none of those things, but maybe in some ways reflects elements of all of those things. Right. Um, so just by virtue of, of being, being around them, I mean, each of those stores is uh, like within a couple blocks of our store in New York. Right. Um, you know, I think, I think inevitably we're all sort of looking at what uh, each other is, is doing. Um, and I think they're, you know, all three of those brands is doing some really, really cool things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the uh, Rowing Blazers Bodega partnership, but, you know, <laughs> we'll see if that ever gels. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. Okay, so back to watches. I mean, um, any any thoughts, ideas, or plans to ever do a watch? The thought has certainly uh, crossed my mind. Um crosses my mind fairly often actually um i think that uh you know i think that will be something that that we'll do um in the future exactly when um remains to be seen but obviously uh you know i'm very passionate about very interested in in watches um i think it would be a sort of natural move for us um and for us it's just yeah it's just a question of of carving out the bandwidth to really be able to, to go about, to go about it the right way, because, um, yeah, doing it the right way, taking a really hard look at it. Um, yeah, is, is the only way that we would want to, um, kind of dip our toe into that, into that world. But I guess the short answer is, um, yes. And stay tuned. Okay. Well, good for all of us to know. Well, we're going to we're going to wrap it here, listeners. Thank you for joining us and and Jack, thank you again. We really appreciate it. Uh you've spent a good chunk of your morning <laughs> uh with us and we sure appreciate it. And for the listeners out there, My thank pleasure. Oh, absolutely. No, we were thrilled to have you. Just FYI everybody, I've been chasing Jack probably for a year uh, to do something, but that's that's sort of a testament I'm about I'm sorry, man. No, no. He's he's <laughs> he's busy and far more popular and interesting than I am. But I want to thank you again and listeners, thank you. Um we will see you next time and until then, Tempest Fujit.